Welcome to season two of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. It's still irreverent. It's still weird. It's still the show that you love to tolerate. Thanks for listening. What's up, guys? Welcome to episode 28, or season 2, episode 8 of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. I'm Kyle, your host, as per the usual. Here's a Friday. Here's an episode. What's up, guys? As we continue our series on wars, particularly odd and weird wars, you have a real interesting one to to speak of today, Uh you know, going around and trying to find these odd little wars was sort of, you know, I want to say it was actually a little bit harder than I thought it was going to be. I, f- I figured I could just, you know, fire up the trusty Google and, you know, just type in weird wars, odd wars, whatever it was, and then get me a nice comprehensive list from which I could just, you know, sort of find the ones I was more familiar with or choose this, that, or the other thing. And that would be, that would be what we... That'd be what we would talk about. And, you know, I typically did that a little bit, but there really there really is a lot of uh debate over whether you know what constitutes a weird war, what constitutes a small odd war. And the ones we've done so far are, are all wars that I've really been fairly familiar with already before coming into it. I just needed the the oomph of somebody saying, Hey, remember this war? and saying, Oh yeah, yeah, and then going in and talking about it uh, on the podcast but this one today I will I will grant you this one today I'd only heard of maybe a couple of weeks ago randomly during my search and I did a little bit more research and I thought well that's kind of an interesting weird little story so today on the show we are going to talk about the shortest war in history the shortest recorded War in history, the Anglo-Zanzibar War. And if you're paying attention, you heard the word Anglo in there. That means, boys, we're visiting another United Kingdom-centric war. Because, of course, if you are the British Empire, you have touched every corner of humanity. So, of course, you're going to be involved in literally every single war that ever existed basically for like a good 300 years you got your fingers in about every single pot when it comes to the war fighting so we're going to talk about the shortest war ever recorded between the english and the citizens of zanzibar a war that took place in about the amount of time that you can binge an episode of your favorite tv show guys knowledge from the couch podcast episode 28 stick with me Once 
Okay, the Anglo-Zanzibar War. Today we're making our first real foray into the African nations and their their own interesting little subculture of, of war and conquest and colonialism that took place between 1700 and basically into the early 20th century. And you could argue still sort of takes place today, although most African nations have very well asserted their own uh, their own sort of sovereignty and independence from their colonial masters. If you saw the the film, the Marvel film recently, Black Panther, one of the insults or one of the pejorative terms that the Wakandans use and other members of those African nations use to describe white people is that of colonialist because Africa was a hotbed for European colonialism and a little bit American colonialism, but not very much. America's only uh, colony or state, so to speak, is Liberia, lying on the West African coast. And that is a story, an interesting one, by the way, but a story for another time. The main point that I'm trying to make here is when these European nations were basically deep in the throes of their kind of conquest, their uh, their shipping, everything, you know, the, in that, that conquistador type of era, you know, the New World era. One of the things that these European nations really, 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 really liked to do was to go places that weren't theirs and take that shit and be like, it's ours now. This place is now ours. And Africa, poor, poor Africa, and, and you, this, this is the biggest reason why there is still the type of poverty and the type of war mongered culture in Africa today. And now and that's that's not to be entirely insensitive to the African continent as a whole. There are over a billion people that live in Africa among the various nations of that continent. And many of them are doing very well. Some of the hottest and and quickest rising nations on earth reside in the resource-rich nations of the African continent. The unfortunate part about all this is that for many, many years, a bunch of white dudes from Europe figured, oh, hey, look at this giant continent full of shit. Oh, there's people here. We don't care. This is ours now. Just, you know, kind of like the United States did with the North American continent or like basically anybody who ever had power did to people who are native to a region who didn't have quite as much power. So these nations go and they sort of divvy up Africa in the so-called rush for Africa, which which, like I said, took place over those few hundred years where European nations were trying to make footholds in these African nations as you know, they're kind of their new colonies. They're, they're part of their own thing. And, of course, when you hear the word colonies, someone on the English Isles gets a massive erection because when it comes to colonies, nobody colonialed better, so to speak, than the British did. Nobody was better at expanding their sphere of influence and making colonies than the British Isles. You could also argue that nobody was better at making colonies that then became very popular and wealthy and powerful independent states that used to be colonies than the British. 
things like Australia, Canada, the United States, India, all these places, South Africa, used to be English-run colonies that are not anymore, some of which are very independent, like the United States, and some of which are not terribly independent, but are pretty much independent, like Canada. Anyhow, this is a gigantic diversion from the topic at hand, but like I always, always say, context is very important. You have to understand why we are in the places that we are. So, Africa is being divvied up by all these nations, and Britain is no exception to the rule. Britain takes various spots in Africa, and this one takes place on the Isle of Zanzibar, which is off of the East African coast in the Indian Ocean. And this area of Africa was being vied for control-wise between the British and the Germans. The Germans also had a very large interest in East Africa and the larger nation, Tanzania, as we know it today, off the coast of Africa there, was at the time known as German East Africa. And the thing about the British control of the area was it wasn't really so much control. It was a lot more of, hey, we recognize Zanzibar's sovereignty and we are going to be very friendly with them. And in that way, we basically exert whatever control that brings us, you know, because there there are different levels of control that a nation with power can exert over nations with less power. You can exert total control where you go into the country and you literally are like, we are in charge of this country now, deal with it, to the point where, you know, less and less is exerted, to this point where Britain said, hey, you guys are your own nation, and hey, we are pretty nice to you, and we want you to be successful, therefore, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you should be our trading partner, you know, sort of like, I wouldn't call it holding them hostage by any means, but I would call it, you know, hey, we were nice to you, therefore you better give us, you know, special, special treatment when it comes to international trade and stuff. And for the most part, the the Sultan of Zanzibar was fine with this plan, and Britain was fine with this plan, and everything went according to that particular plan for many, 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 many years up to into 1886, where Britain then had formally, formally recognized Zanzibar's sovereignty after their long period of friendly interaction before that and up to that point with the sultanate that had existed in the Zanzibar royal line. And they generally maintained good relations with the country and its sultans because A, they wanted their resources, and B, they wanted a foothold in East Africa. However, as we stated before, Germany was also interested in the East African uh, part of the continent and had established their own nation over uh, on the mainland shore. And the two powers, Germany and the United Kingdom, vied for control of trade rights and territory in this area throughout the late 19th century, which is where we are currently. And as we were talking about a little bit earlier, even before, the Britain government had you know given this this nod of sovereignty in 1886 and had had exerted a very friendly sort of control over the Zanzibar people and the Zanzibar sultanate that was in control of this island nation off the coast of East Africa uh one of Britain's biggest 
objectives was to actually outlaw slavery in East Africa, as we're all sort of aware at this point. Uh, the African slave trade not only took place off West Africa into the uh, into the New World or into the Americas, but it kind of took place all over the continent. And it wasn't just white people grabbing slaves and making them, you know, go wherever. It was also, you know, African people and Arab people trading other people as property. And it was just a whole deal. And, you know, the British had sort of gained this uh, this this next level morality, I guess you could call it. And were very much interested in not having slavery be a thing anymore. So that was one of the huge uh, objectives that they had as they were going into the Zanzibar area. But their number one objective still was to exert their influence on East Africa in order to reap the benefits of said influence. Uh, at this point, uh, there was the Sultan Ali, who was in control of Zanzibar, a very pro-British sultan, which they loved, and he died uh, in the late 1800s. And his successor was Hamad bin Thuwani, who became sultan in 1800. 93. Now, the Sultan Hamad maintained a very close relationship with the British government, but unfortunately, there was dissent among the subjects of his, those Zanzibar citizens, over the increasing British control of the country. Because as we've been sort of alluding to, this type of control isn't quite direct, but it is very insidious. It is very slow moving. It is where you just kind of move a foot at a time, you creep in, you know, one finger here, another finger there, all of a sudden the the hand has has grabbed you and has the grip on you and has the control over your country. And that kind of was happening despite anybody saying that Britain didn't want anything to do with that. They most certainly, certainly did. And there was dissent among Zanzibari citizens or the subjects of the Sultan Hamad uh, over the increasing British control over their country. This leads then to the British authorities authorizing the, the Sultan Hamad to raise a Zanzibari poli- uh, palace bodyguard of a thousand men. But then eventually these troops uh, got involved in skirmishes with the British led police because, of course, they did. And complaints about the bodyguards activities were also received from those European people who are residing in Zanzibar, not the people who are subjects of the Sultan himself. So we're getting a little bit messy, but for the most part. The Sultan Hamad was a uh, a staunch supporter of British influence on his area, whereas some of his uh, some of his subjects, some of the the Sultanate subjects, uh, citizens of Zanzibar were not entirely happy. And this leads us up to the precursor to this little baby war that we're about to have on August 25th of 1896. The Sultan Hamad dies suddenly. That morning, his 29-year-old nephew, Khalid bin Bargash, who was suspected of his assassination because, of course, moves into the palace and takes control of the Zanzibar Sultanate. The British, of course, do not like this guy, and they preferred their own alternative candidate because, of course, why, why pretend that your that your sphere of influence is, is even at all covert or even at all small? when you now are starting to suggest that you should just install your own alternative uh, candidate in its place, your own Manchurian-type candidate. So you have the, uh, the the man, Khalid bin Bargash, who I will call Bargash from now on. 
he's the one suspected, A, of the uh, Sultan Hamad's uh, assassination, and he also is the one who moves in and says, I'm, look at me, look at me, I'm the Sultan now. That's his deal. The British, not impressed by this, want a new candidate, Hamoud bin Mohammed, who I refer to as Hamoud, as the British favored candidate for uh, accession to the Zanzibari Sultanate. And uh, Bargash was warned by the council and the diplomatic agent to Zanzibar, who was a British man, to think very carefully about what he was about to do, what his actions may end up causing. He, of course, ignores any of these warnings, and his forces then begin mustering in the palace square under the command of Captain Saleh, one of his uh, palace bodyguard. By the end of that day, this is August 25th now, we have to do it by days because this is a very short, short war, they numbered 2,800 men armed with rifles and muskets. The majority of these mustered were civilians, but the force did include 700 Zanzibari, Zanzibari Askari soldiers who had then sided with uh, Bargash. The Sultan's artillery consisted of several Maxim machine guns, a Gatling gun, a uh, 17th century bronze cannon, and two 12-pounder field guns, which were all aimed at the British ships that were taking place in the harbor. The 12-pounders had been presented to the Sultan by Wilhelm of the German Empire, which starts to show that there was a little bit of German uh, influence in the, the, the taking of this particular Sultanate. As we were talking about, Germans also it, it wanted their influence on East Africa to be solid, and of course, they have a little bit of a hand in this as well. We're seeing almost the beginning of a little baby type of proxy war. The Sultan troops also took possession of the Zanzibari Navy, which was one whole wooden sloop, the Glasgow, built as a royal yacht for the Sultan about 20 years before that, and it was just hanging out in the harbor. So they got a few guns, they got about 2,800 men, and they got one little ship. This is how they presume to take back whatever influence that the British had already exerted on their people. At this point, then, the British opposition to this decides to start mustering their own little baby amount of forces having mustered some 900 Zanzibari Ascaris of their own under Lieutenant Arthur Edward Harrington Rakes Jesus that's a super British name holy shit who was seconded to the Zanzibar army and held the rank of brigadier general he also had 150 sailors and marines and he himself also grabbed a couple of little nine pound guns and uh, his very professional troops decided to uh, set up shop a little bit nearby at a nearby customs house, waiting to have the you know command to do whatever they needed to do. But for the most part, this was a, hey, you know, I'm the British person now. Hey, uh, uh, Bargash, you should definitely not do this. And then Bargash on the other side is like, uh, fuck you, I am doing this. And what are you going to do to stop me? I have more dudes. What are you going to do? The British continued to send messages to Bargash requesting that he stand down his troops, leave that palace, and return home. But, of course, he just goes up in plain, ignores them, and actually gets to the point where he replies later on that day that he was going to make himself sultan at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The British, of course, uh, say that to him that this constitutes an act of rebellion and that his sultancy would not be recognized by the British government as sovereign. 
Of course, Bargash doesn't give a shit what they think about anything. And 30 minutes after uh, Sultan Hamad was buried, he decides that now is the time and I'm taking command and this is now my country. Well, this is going to lead to a little bit of conflict between the two because, of course, the British don't want this. And basically everyone else around here doesn't really want it at all either. And by everyone else, I mean uh, other foreign nations sort of watching and existing around this area really aren't keen about Bargash being in command. The next day, the 26th of August, an Archer-class protected cruiser called the Raccoon arrives at Zanzibar Town's harbor and anchors with the Thrush and the Sparrow, which were already there. Now, there are three ships. Later on that day, an Edgar-class cruiser, the St. George, uh, also steams its way into the harbor and is under the command of Rear Admiral Harry Rawson and with more British Marines and soldiers. So now you have a bunch of ships hanging out in the harbor waiting for any command as to what to actually do in this situation. Around the same time, there is a, a reply by Telegraph authorizing the British forces to use the resources at their disposal to remove Bargash from power. The Telegraph read, quote, You are authorized to adopt whatever measures you may consider necessary and will be supported in your action by Her Majesty's government, Her Majesty being Queen Victoria at the time. Do not, however, attempt to take any action which you are not certain of being able to accomplish successfully. So basically, the Telegraph says you can do whatever you want. Just make sure that when you do it, you goddamn win on the first try. So the British forces, not really wanting to get into some sort of super ridiculous armed conflict, then attempt to further negotiations with Bargash. And of course, these fail, where then they send an ultimatum to him, requiring him to haul down his flag and leave the palace by 9 a.m. the next day, August 27th, or he would open fire on that palace. During the afternoon, all merchant vessels were cleared from the harbor and the British women and children removed from this or removed to the St. George and a British India Steam Navigation Company vessel for their safety. That night, Consul Moen uh, noted that the silence which hung over Zanzibar was appalling. Usually drums were beating or babies cried, but that night there was not a sound at all. So the next day, August 27th, at 8 a.m. on the morning of August 27th, after a messenger sent by Bargash requested parley from the British, the consul replied that he would only have salvation if he agreed to the previous turns of the ultimatum, saying that you tear your flag down and you surrender to us. At 8.30, a further message from Bargash declared that we have no intentions of hauling down our flag, and we do not believe you would open fire on us, calling their bluff Bargash is doing. The British reply, we do not want to open fire, but unless you do as you are told, we shall certainly do so. At 8.55, having received no further word from the palace, aboard the St. George, Admiral Rawson hoists the signal to prepare for action. At exactly 9 a.m., the British ships commence their bombardment exactly as they said they would. If Bargash had not given his uh, flag and power up by 9 a.m., the British were going to open fire, and at 9 a.m., they did just that. At 9.02, Her Majesty's ships Raccoon, Thrush, and Sparrow opened fire at the palace simultaneously. 
Thrush's first shot immediately dismounted one of those 12-pound cannons we were talking about earlier. 3,000 defenders, servants, and slaves were present in the largely wooden palace, and even with barricades of crates, bales, and rubber, there were many casualties from the highly explosive shells the British ships were firing. Despite initial reports that they had been captured and exiled to India, uh, Bargash actually escaped from the palace because he's a total pussy and decides that he would rather not tear down his flag and surrender, but instead let all his people be bombed while he runs away and escapes to East German Africa. A Reuters news correspondent then reports that the Sultan had fled at the first shot with all the leading Arabs who left their slaves and followers to carry on the fighting. But other sources then later stated that he remained on the palace for longer. Who really knows? The The point is that he left when things actually started to get a little bit heated. The shelling then stops around 9.40 in the morning, by which time the palace and attached harem had caught fire and the Sultan's artillery had been silenced and his flag eventually cut down. During this bombardment, a small naval engagement occurred at 9.05 when that obsolete Glasgow, that sloop, that one naval Zanzibari ship, fired upon the St. George using her seven nine-pounder guns and their Gatling gun, uh, the return fire caused the Glasgow to sink because, of course, it did. It was just this little baby ship that they had stolen. And, of course, it wasn't going to uh, have any power against the St. George, which is a huge steam-powered vessel, uh, iron-sided at the time. Uh, though the shallow harbor meant that the mast remained out of the water. So, basically, it sunk like five feet. And it was like, oh, our ship sunk. Okay, well, goodbye. The Glasgow's crew hoisted a British flag as a token of their surrender, of course, and they were all rescued by British sailors in their launches. The Thrush also sank two steam launches, whose Zanzibari crew shot at her with rifles. Some land fighting did occur when Bargash's men fired on these uh, these British uh, Askari soldiers, but it had little effect as they approached the palace. The fighting ceased when the shelling ceased. The British controlled the town and the palace, and by the afternoon... Uh, Hamoud, which we talked about earlier, an Arab favorite, favorable to the British, was then installed as Sultan, of course, but with much reduced powers. Also, of course, because the British now found an opportunity to install a puppet candidate to make Zanzibar a puppet type of state for them. And there you have it. A war that took anywhere that people are recording between 38 and 45 minutes. That is it. The Anglo-Zanzibar War took around the time it takes to watch the average episode of a hour-long program on TV if you took out the commercials. And that will do it for our bite-sized little Anglo-Zanzibar War chunked episode. Of course, the war is literally only 38 minutes long, and honestly, this podcast will last almost as long as that entire war in 1896 did last. And now, of course, for your non-sequitur fact of the week. Before it was the pound sign, and before goddamn millennials ruined it and made it the hashtag, that eight-figured item that I know you're thinking about right at this current moment was actually named... The Octothorpe, the Octo, of course, referring to the eight points of the symbol. 
you could say that that fact is Octothorpe interesting. And that, of course, leads us, as per the usual, to the end of the episode of the podcast. Guys, thank you for continually listening and supporting and telling your friends about the show. It means a great deal to me that you would all waste your time listening to me talk on a weekly basis about little interesting historical things. It makes me happy to do the show, and it makes me happy that at least two or three people out there are actively listening to it. I don't know. It's probably more than that. But hey, sometimes it feels a little lonely in this bubble, and that's okay. As long as whoever is listening is enjoying what they're hearing, that is all that I care about. You can follow the show on Twitter at the Couch Pod. You can follow me on Twitter, me, myself, and I at Kyle Steinhauser. You can follow me on Instagram. Just put an F between Kyle and Steinhauser. You get Kyle F. Steinhauser. That is my Instagram name. You can find us on Facebook. Search Knowledge from the Couch Podcast. You will join 100 strong fans of this show. You can email the show, knowledgecouch at gmail.com, even though nobody does, because who uses email anymore? Anyhow, Please, please remember to subscribe to the show when you're on your podcasting app. Leave a review. I know a few of you have, and I'm uh, very happy and grateful for that. Leave a review and rate the show five stars if you think I'm giving you five-star content. Even though I don't every week, I would like to think that I at least give a five-star effort every single week. You can find this show anywhere you can find podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, TuneIn, PocketCast, anything that allows you to access the wide, wonderful world of podcasting will eventually lead you to my podcast. Guys, until next week, it has been a pleasure talking to you about a war that lasted about as long as this podcast. Next week, we will end our series on Little Odd Wars, and then after that, I will produce another prequel episode to our next series of episodes guys don't miss it and i will see you next week too many thoughts on my mind i can't sleep at night so i just keep writing i don't need no help i don't need opinion so don't waste my time then i just been living online my city don't show me no love and that's fine fuck local radio stations i got more plays than all of these rappers combined i'm going i'm going again i've been going in i'm fed up with so many things i gotta just let it all out i'm talking about the shit they've been talking about telling me i should do this telling me i should do that telling me telling me things about rap talking the truth and that stab in my back they will knock me off track no no too many things have been building been hard to deal with i just been drinking remember my moves in the past i'm wondering what was i thinking lately i'm living in fear wondering what if the end is so near all of this shit going on the shootings are strong one shot to the head and i'm gone i'm losing control but i can't let it go because i'm trying to get more and i've been in a moment i've been in a zone and i'm moving alone i don't pick up the phone when my family call i've been doing it wrong and i don't know what's happening trying to get what i just been imagining getting close and i just been examining all of the fake shit the game has been packaging
from a town where most of the people are so close-minded They go into school and they work in a job, but they don't even like it I won't be put in a box, nobody telling me what I should rock Nobody telling me what I should drop, cause I do what I want and just nobody don't stop Recording till four in the morning, they snoring, I'm pouring my soul into every story I'm writing, producing, I mix it, I master, I'm building my craft and I'm not looking back I've been going doing things I wanna do when I want to Everybody wanna get away, but they not do Everybody wanna copy you, but they not you Everybody wanna be cool, but they not new Whoa, look how I go, gonna be a dentist, I still got the flow Never gonna lose cause I'm still doing both Never gonna lose cause I've been on the road Come to your state and I'm killing the show Know that I'm young and I still gotta grow Know that I'm working the most, no I'm never gonna choke And I'm looking back down on the people below I've been keeping real, I've been doing what I feel I've been out here trying to kill